We are back. I'm Paul. I'm the Scotty Pippen of this podcast. <laughs> and you know what that makes you, Kevin? The Dennis Rodman? Will Purdue. <laughs> oh, God. I did uh, refer to myself on the show this week as the Bobby Hansen. Uh, we didn't get Bobby. See- oh, that's a deep. That's a deep callback. Bobby Hanson. Bobby Hanson, ninety-two against the Blazers. It was Cliff Levinson, Bobby Hanson, and Stacy King, who, with Michael on the bench, went off. They rallied the Bulls back. Rallied the Bulls back, and this is why this should have been twenty-three episodes because uh, I doubt I'm the only one that wants to watch Cliff Levinson and Bobby Hanson go off. Didn't Bobby Hansen have sort of long, flowing, glorious yes. hair? Yeah, yeah, yes, he did. He had uh, kind of an early 90s mullet working, but it, it'd be probably a mullet today. It really wasn't a mullet back then. But, yeah, those guys uh, those guys were able to, to really pick up Michael and the team whenever they needed them. Man, it was, as a Bulls fan, this was a lot of fun. This was fun going through it. And I think the most fun I've had are seeing people – either our age but or even bk uh one and oh podcast you got to check that out people his age in his mid-20s my nephews really getting into it and giving michael the respect and the bulls the respect that i believe they deserve yeah i think you're right and um it's funny talking to some of the younger folks who didn't necessarily see him because i feel like I feel like the people of the baby boom trying to explain gail sayers or something <laughs> right exactly and and so you're left trying to explain it, and they're like, so basically Michael Jordan was like Dwayne Wade? And you're like, no, no, no. He, there, there's no facet of his game that, was, <laughs> that Dwayne Wade had as good as Jordan's, in fact. Um, but, but if you give the broad strokes to him, you know, you're like, eh, yeah, he, he didn't shoot a lot of threes. He drove to the basket. He was in, you know, incredible on the drive and super competitive. He could rebound. He could pass. He could – he could really defend and blah, blah, blah. And they're like, Oh, yes, he's like Dwayne Wade. And you're like, no, no, no. it's Dwayne Wade's good. Yeah. Uh, but no, we're, we're talking about another level of this. So when you can kind of just present this 10 hour documentary and say, watch this, it really helps you with your argument and it helps people understand how amazing Jordan was and the kind of hold that he had on people, because he was one of those rare athletes that, he was kind of your second favorite player. No matter, you know, there's plenty of people that love Barkley. They loved, you know, their hometown team, their best player. But Jordan was kind of everyone's second best player. And he was a lot of people's first best player, right? Or favorite player. Our favorite player. Yeah, yeah no, you're right. And it, it, it's funny because you think about it. Now everything has shifted to where it's not about your hometown team. It's about, well, I, I follow my favorite player. So they're LeBron people. And, and they're, they were Cavs fans. Then they were Heat fans. Then they were Cavs fans again. And now they're Lakers fans because they're following their guy. That just wasn't done when we were growing up. But he was the first one that I remember where it was like, yeah, I hate the Bulls, but and David Robinson's my favorite player or Akeem or Ewing. And that usually was depending, you know, dependent on where you lived. But almost everyone had Michael there. And even if you didn't like him, you sure as hell respected him. Yeah, there's no question. You, you, even with a player like LeBron James, who's indisputably great, or Kevin Durant, who's yeah. indisputably great, uh, there's a fair amount of haters and, and a fair amount of detractors. And they sort of will try to disrespect them. I mean, it's kind of stupid. I mean, it's demonstrable that the, they're the two best players in the game, right? Right. But and it becomes it, so it, binary, too. It becomes binary. I mean, it, you know, it's just ridiculous. It, it's very silly, but it is helpful to go back and look at these guys. And as we are saying, you know, sports progresses, and particularly explosive sports, it's very difficult to compare teams of different eras, but you can sure as heck compare players. And if you're truthful about it and objective, you'll find that a lot of players 20 years prior just can't translate, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And Michael Jordan would translate real well <laughs> and so he'd be fine I think this yeah i think this this series helps to demonstrate that but you know it, it shows this hyper acceleration of sport because imagine the kareem abdul jabbar milwaukee bucks of the 1970s they were sort of the dynasty of the 70s at least in the early 70s they were playing a game that was unrecognizable from what george mikan and the minnesota mm-hmm. or minneapolis lakers were playing right no question. No, there's no there's no question that I mean, we see the change and we can see it by watching these 90s games to what we see today. 
and you see the evolution. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's so hard to compare. We've talked about it in football. I mean, football, it gets real ridiculous whenever you're saying 69 yeah. Texans against 05 Texas. Well, as we've talked about, just, just with the size and speed, you can't compare it. There are a lot of guys that, that, it, that played in the 80s and 90s that would have a really tough time playing in the league now. But there's always going to be guys that cross over. And LeBron would have had no problem you know, people have. I've heard some people say, "Well, Durant would have a problem playing in the '90s." I mean, he may get pushed around a little bit. LeBron would have no problem playing anytime. And same thing with Jordan. No, I mean, LeBron would would eat the Pistons up with that physical style and his physicality. Uh, Durant, you know, actually, he put on a lot of strength and size. In just kind of, he kind of had a Jordan esque revelation. And people forget, starting in 2016, he weighed about 235, 240. Mm-hmm. And he put on a lot of size and strength because he got tired of sort of getting, getting banged around a little bit. Because in the playoffs, you know, even though the modern basketball, they've sort of swallowed their whistle, they do allow you to bang a little bit more in the playoffs. They'd allow you to grab people. And it just depends on the crew you get sometimes. And Durant was frustrated to have very physical defenders grabbing him. And, of course, Oklahoma State, I mean, Oklahoma State, Oklahoma City was running a ridiculous ISO offense where they don't do anything to free him. And so you could kind of clamp on him and grab him and harass him. And he really started lifting weights and particularly in his lower body. And you could see that when he went to the Warriors. Yeah. And, you know, Le- he- LeBron James was guarding him and LeBron James could not guard him. Yeah. And that was a wake up call, I think, to everyone of not just his skill level, but the fact that his physicality had improved. And by the way, he's 6'11". People he- kind of forget that. Yeah. And, yeah. Who, who, and he can shoot from anywhere. Uh, and obviously he can get that shot off at 6'11". Yeah, that, that was when you started hearing whispers, at least in the sports radio world and callers and texters, KD's better than LeBron right now. KD's the best player yeah. in the league. And after looking at that series, it, it was an argument. Yeah, the, unfortunately, the Achilles is going to derail that for a little while. So we'll see how he recovers. But, uh, yeah, we'll get to have these arguments hopefully soon as sports returns. And uh, things are looking a little bit better on that front. And another area, another front that things are looking good is with a guy who's been a member of our dynasty from the beginning, and that's Gabe Winslow at Mortgage Solutions. Gabe and I were just uh, talking, and he sent me a text. I said, is there anything you want to relay to the listeners with respect to markets or mortgage rates or anything like that? And he wrote me the following text, Kevin. We are in a pennant formation with BIPs where the moving averages are converging. What that means is if we break resistance, there is potential for a free fall where rates worsen and knock deals out. Right now, we are trading in a very tight range as these moving averages converge, but there is more downside risk for a borrower on the fence than upside potential. Okay. So my translation of that, and Gabe's a very bright guy who knows his industry very well, is that there's some volatility in the market. There isn't a shot of these markets uh, rates not staying stable. Right. And in fact, if you're kind of on the fence and you're trying to exactly nail the perfect time to refinance or to buy a new home or to take money out of your existing mortgage, this would be a good time to jump off the fence, lock in very incredibly low historical rates, because if the rates start to go up, Gabe's contention in his feel is that they might go up rapidly. Mm-hmm. And they might not just go up a quarter of a point and sort of, oh, you know, oh, now I better jump off the fence. They might go up very, very quickly before you have a chance to act. And of course, when you'll try to act, a bunch of other people be flooding the market. That's not where you want to be trying to get your uh, trying to get your application process when everyone else is jumping in. So, give our friend Gabe Winslow a call at Mortgage Solutions eight three two five five seven one zero nine five. In today's world of cell phones, there's very few phone numbers I know by heart anymore, Kevin. <laughs> I know my mom's home phone because that was my home phone growing up. Right. She hasn't moved. I think I know my sister. I know maybe one other cell phone number. The other only other number I know is Gabe at Mortgage Solutions. So uh, it's been now impressed in my head and I think probably on our listeners. But once again, it's 832-557-1095. Or you could go to Mortgages by Gabe. You guys know the drill by now. You mentioned the podcast. You're going to get $500 off of closing right away. You bring in a competitive quote within the last 24 to 48 hours. He'll beat it by a grand. And if you don't want to bring in a competitive quote, he'll still give you the great quote anyway. He's uh, not interested in nickel-diming our listeners. He's a loyal uh, Texas graduate. 
He's a really sharp guy, and he's someone you want to do business with. So give Gabe a call. We're proud to have him sponsoring. Yeah, he has been fantastic, and he saved a lot of our listeners' money. It, it, it can't hurt. Just give it a shot, and it sounds like that shot needs to be taken now. I agree. You you miss all the shots you don't take or something? Something like that. What was it? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I was go- We were going over some of the Jordan numbers and just how clutch he was that he pretty much in the playoffs hit 50% of the – shots to either go ahead or uh or to take the lead he he, that's where he kind of separated himself to me is that and they showed it with the Indiana series the one that he had to double clutch and they showed Mm -hmm. Larry Bird after Reggie Miller uh did get a little push off and but still hit a miraculous shot and Reggie was clutch as hell too there's 0.8 seconds left on the clock and they showed Larry Bird the whole Indiana crowd's going nuts and Bird looks like he just lost a family member. He knew <laughs> he, he knew what was still in store and they all did and the fact that MJ almost banked that double clutch shot in. I remember at the time just laughing thinking this guy isn't real. And I also remember thinking the whole time this thing's going in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean there, that was kind of always the feeling and what was more amazing when they did clinch that series. And, and it's interesting because that 96 Bulls team, in a sense, represents greatness, right? The 72-10 and 10 regular season record, obviously they won the title. But if you really look at that team critically at the very end of their actual season, not the totality of the season, they're run down. 96 team? And, yeah, I think they were a little run down. They're, yeah, they I were. Really do. They they were not as much as the ninety seven, then obviously the ninety eight team, but yeah, you could feel it a little bit. Uh, I mean, they did go fifteen and three, I think, in the playoffs. So it, mm-hmm. it's it's one of those that numbers may not really show you, but yeah, I remember at the time being a little worried about that, just how much gas was in the tank, and some of those guys had never played that long either. I mean, a lot of those guys hadn't played in the finals yet. Yeah, I one thing I do think the series might have set up, and I think the media is set up because particularly of Reggie Miller's play and a couple of these very telegenic moments in that series, particularly, and also in some of his confrontations with the Knicks and the fact that's going to get a lot of media attention. Reggie Miller was a very good player. And as you said, often a very clutch shooter in some key moments. I think the series kind of overbuilt him. And I think there's a perception of Reggie Miller as a player in the common fan's mind that was not exactly a really what Reggie Miller was and Reggie Miller was a great shooter but he's also a streak shooter yep and there were plenty of plenty of big moments because the Pacers were good for quite a while they're kind of the forgotten team of the 90s Mm -hmm. and there were plenty of big games and plenty of big moments where you go look at the box score and Reggie Miller was 4-14 with 11 points two rebounds and one assist yeah no, and, real time, we knew he was streakier, and that, that really hasn't, that hasn't lasted. I'll say this, I, and you're right, I think he maybe gets a little overrated just in terms of being an overall player and how, how consistent he was or wasn't at times. Rick Smith, I think, is getting underrated. Rick Smith was a oh damn God, good player. I'm, I'm so glad you said that. So here's the crazy thing, Kevin. I remember him in the 90s. And, you know, the Indiana Pacers weren't on TV a lot. You kind of would have to see them in the playoffs, right? Yeah. You, you didn't have league pass back then. And I went back and watched some of that series and on YouTube. And Rick Smith could shoot, man. Yeah. And, and he was good on defense. Yo, uh, Rick Smith was really good. And, he, like, he had that 15, 17-footer, uh, obviously the nickname, the Duncan Dutchman. I mean, he was what was he seven three or I mean he was oh he was like seven, seven two four, okay. seven three yeah seven, I mean four. He, he he was a big ass guy but as he but got he could move he could move you're right and he got more skilled and more skilled and I was as scared of him as I was of Reggie now I was scared of Reggie because I knew that if it wasn't that eleven point night something was coming yeah I think you're exactly right and and by the way Reggie Miller not scared to shoot the last shot no that that was. I'm not going to take away from that part of his game. And, and the guy was nailed and he wanted the ball late. The other thing, oh, I, I kind of wanted to complete my thought on the Bulls looking a little tired and why the Pacers were able to push them to a seven-game series. Okay, no, but, but you were talking about the Pacers, or you were talking about the Bulls in, in that first 72-10 and 10 season. Cause when oh, I, uh, yeah, I'm sorry about that. Okay, You're yeah. Right. I, when I, I worry about the Pacers, I, I worry more about 97 and 98. Yes, I conflated the two. I'm so sorry. I meant... 
I meant to say that they, they, were, they looked you know, beat and spent in that 98 season. You're exactly right. Sorry, Kevin. And No, and, uh, and by the way, they did. As a Bulls fan, I was legitimately worried and scared and knew the reality they could lose to the Pacers and they could lose to the Jazz. And I predicted both would go seven, and they both almost did. Yeah, and the Pacers were probably better than the Jazz because the Jazz really came out of a pretty weak West at that time. Tim Duncan hadn't come into his full powers yet, Rock- and Rockets were still Rockets were had just won, but they were were they experimenting with their new their new lineup by that point? Like was I'm trying I to think, think who they was there. they kind of fell apart right away right. after those championships, and I, I don't remember exactly why to tell you the truth, but yeah, they were sort of a meteor, you know, flash in the sky, but. Um, I was going to say the Pacers had depth. They just had a bunch of good players. Yeah. You know, not great players, but other than Smiths and they had Jalen Rose, they had uh, Chris Mullen, they had uh, the Davis, the Davis Brothers. Davis Brothers. Derek McKee. And then they had Derek McKee. Yeah. Yeah. Derek McKee was a very good player. And they just came at you in waves. And, and they had no individual player as good as Jordan. And, of course, no individual player even as good as Pippen. But – the next best six or seven players, other than Rodman, whoever you want to slot him, were all Pacers. Probably. So in accumulation, they just came at the, the Bulls in waves, and to their credit, they were one of the few teams and coaches who understood that you actually needed to go at them with sort of energy. And, and you, know, you, you had to wear them down, and you had to make Michael Jordan carry the entire load. And being Michael Jordan, he put – the bulls on his back and he carried the load, but man, it was, it was an interesting series to watch. I remember it. And, but I watching the YouTube clips and some of the games, it, it really came back and Pacers could have won it. I mean, yeah. it was a very near thing. Yeah, no, they, they could have now the, once again, talk about the documentary, trying kind of blowing stuff up and there's six and a half minutes to go in that game. It's a three point game. And they made that jump ball sound like they had a three point lead with 20 seconds to go. Yeah, that was not the decisive play of the game. That was I mean, a weird. Come on. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a documentary that they had to rush to get out. Yeah, when they when they moved up the production schedule, and so I, I I think they did some very good things in episode nine and ten and wrapping it up. But there were some elements like that where they created false drama, and it was like, come on, that was not that was not the key to the game. You're just that that was an odd thing. I, I guess they just wanted to show. Jordan facing off with Smiths and like, look, Jordan slays another giant and right. comes up clutch. And it's like, all right, relax. Yeah. Like, we don't need to manufacture it. Well, Rick actually won the jump. He just tipped it to Scotty. Yeah, exactly right. He just mistipped it. He just mistipped so. it. Uh, yeah. yeah. Th- you know, there was some really cool stuff for me, though, that I hadn't seen. And when you talk about Jordan as a competitor and an ultimate trash talker, uh, he did put his money where his mouth is with the whole Isaiah stuff because they showed him, obviously, early on in the documentary shaking hands with the Pistons and not leaving the court before they finally got over the hump. But seeing him, whether it's with Larry Bird when Bird's a coach and they meet up, Carl Malone and Stockton after they scored 54 points, he went up you know, as they're crossing paths in the media area and they shake hands. He did it with Reggie. Uh, I yeah. thought I thought it was really cool, and I give Carl Malone a ton of respect to get on the bus in '98 just to say bye to Michael. Yeah, I think that's true. I I look I I said it before. Michael Jordan's kind of old school. Yeah, and there was he was hyper competitive. He would create all sorts of grievances and weird things in his mind to compete against and things to motivate himself. But there was a graciousness and some element of sportsmanship, and he also really respected other good players. And I mean, it's hilarious when he eliminates the Pacers and he sees Bird, the head coach, oh. and he says, and he walks up to, he says something, then he walks up to him and he's like, "F you, bitch!" <laughs> <laughs> says, "I'll see you. Go practice your golf. Go game. work on your Bird's golf game." Yeah. And Bird's just laughing and taking it because Bird is a, probably a better trash talker than Jordan in his heyday, and uh, he just is like, "Yeah, you know, whatever." I mean, there's a little fraternity of those great players where they just all acknowledge each other. And I think also bird as great as he was, and he had a a fervent fan group who obviously thought he was the best player ever. Right. Yep. And uh, bird just said, Jordan's the best player ever. Yeah. Like in magic Johnson, to his credit and magic Johnson was, you know, has a lot of things like he had this weird 
down-to-earth, blue-collar ability to appraise the world as it really is. And Magic Johnson was just like, yeah, Jordan's the best player ever. Like, it's not, it's, you know, I'm up there with Larry. We're in the top five somewhere, whatever. I don't care. But yeah, Jordan's the best ever. Like, it's not, it's fine. And <laughs> they're just like, let's move on. It's obvious. And you got the sense and, uh, that, that Larry, Larry, Larry got that really early on. I mean, obviously in that, in that playoff series. We're talking, Larry got that with Michael early. Yes. And then Bobby. Yeah, well, I think, I think he saw better than anyone Yes, the athleticism, but I think he basically also saw a player with flawless fundamentals as well. Mm-hmm. And it, obviously the drive and the work ethic, the competitiveness, and, you know, he, he, he saw what was going to be obvious. And for whatever reason, Bird, unlike so many other great players, was a good coach and was a pretty good GM. And these other guys, I mean, disastrous. Jordan, Isaiah Thomas, Magic Johnson, they just they, they couldn't see the game in as it was with other players sometimes it was a very strange thing but bird for whatever reason was able to do it i don't know why yeah well you mentioned bird and kerr you're right they were able to do it jerry west was able to do it as a gm uh but yeah most of them can't now it's usually not as drastic as being the best ever to do something and then being one of the worst ever to do something in the same industry (laughs) Uh, and Jordan has managed to pull that off. Uh, I have no doubt he's the best player of all time. I mean, whether he's the worst GM or not, I don't know. But he, he's on that list, man. It's been it's been uh, it's been pretty bad. Yeah, it has. But uh, all right. Well, at least we have one thing we can crap on on his, on his legacy. So he's not. He's not perfect. At least, at least he can demonstrate that he is a human being in one aspect of his life. Yeah, and we saw that. I, I think a lot of the good comes, uh, you know, a lot of the good that you get from Michael comes from the same spot in his personality and just his makeup that also gives you the asshole and gives you some of the bullying and gives you spitting on pizzas and and a gambling problem and all that stuff. And it, you got to take the good with the bad. And I think his teammates ended up doing that. I do remember at the time thinking this is it and not thinking that that they could win another one um and or just that not everything was going to come together they were obviously drained in 98 you're exactly right about that they were physically drained they were emotionally drained mentally drained they were just drained but there were so many other things that went into it so even if phil does come back well as we found out rodman rodman was was long gone by then he he was he was hanging out in pluto I don't think you get Dennis Rodman back that next year. Certainly not no. not the way that it no, went it, in 98. Okay, we knew there was a big lockout coming. We knew Scotty was probably going to re-sign. Also, we knew if you're watching almost every game that Scotty was starting to break down physically and the back, which he had operated on very early on in his pro career, was giving him problems. We saw that against Utah, Phil and Krause. That wasn't going to work. And we didn't know it then, but Michael Jordan was going to severely cut his finger with a cigar cutter during that lockout and had to get surgery on his finger and couldn't play that next year. Mm-hmm. That's true. It's it's all this little sub subtext and subscript that people may not remember just because it we, we kind of like, oh, it's a big mystery why they fell apart. They were going to kind of fall apart anyway. Yeah. I, the move, of course, would be you bring Jordan back irrespective of all that. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right? of course. And uh, you might want to have to move Pippen. You may have to move Pippen, but God, they got nothing for him from the Rockets. And then they, of course, they allowed Kerr to go, and they let everything fall apart. What they should have done, and obviously Rodman, he was going to be out of basketball, and he'd actually become, they glossed it over in the series, but he had become completely unreliable. It was more than just doing wrestling. Yeah, apparently. oh yeah, no, I mean, it was, you knew that year, you just, I just remember as a fan that year, and this was just the only, the stuff I was getting, so the Tribune and stuff like that, that this was going to be it, and I just, I was hoping we could keep this crazy band together long enough to finish out the the uh, finish out the tour and do it the right way before everything just went to hell. Yeah, yeah. All that said, I don't let Michael Jordan leave. No, I I just and I you build a new team and you sell them on it and I just yeah it it's it's a weird way it ended. I don't think the Bulls would have repeated. I think people talk about oh if they just come back you know they were ah uh, not not really. I don't they just were kind of done, but. That was a that was a weird ending, and really an ending of an era because it's not clean, it's not perfect, but basketball really took a dive, and yeah, 
the talent depleted, the watchability depleted, everything happened. You know, it's weird to say that now because you had this incredible upsurge in basketball and talent and all that, but it was looking pretty dark for about, oh, eight to ten years right after that, that last Bulls championship. No, it did. That, that wasn't a racial shot, was it? No. <laughs> yeah. well, I think uh, basketball had a lot of black players before that. <laughs> they, they did. You're right about that. I think people forget that because of the resurgence you talked about. But, yeah, it was. it's also why I don't think David Stern ever forced Jordan to sit out. Jordan could have been gambling uh, his ass off, which he was. Stern knew about it. David Stern was not going to lose that money and risk the NBA, which Jordan had taken to another level to have even the two years in 94 and 95. Now, maybe Jordan's dad was killed because of the gambling connections. I have no idea. It does definitely seem to me that Michael has a gambling problem. But I I just – and I'm saying this because I don't think David Stern would do it. Uh, David Stern, as they say in the the, uh, documentary, he's a capitalist. He wasn't going to do that. David Stern wouldn't suspend Michael Jordan if he – found out he was involved in human trafficking right he, he'd find a way to hide it yes he'd probably he'd probably find a way to get a cut <laughs> <laughs> so so you're with me on that 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 one i think that's one of the conspiracies that obviously was brought up during this whole thing and i don't know i, I was it did make me feel better because as i was going through this i was forgetting real time and i was trying to remember and, and i just I thought, was I wrong? Because I remember at the time thinking, this is it, and we can't do it after this. And after watching the last couple episodes, no, what I, what I remembered was correct. That was it. It was the last dance, and it was a hell of a way to go out. Yeah, I think you're right. Hey, as an aside, we never addressed the Jordan baseball thing, which was interesting and, and all that, and it was a, a big it was a big show. If, I, I, remember, I remember they followed it, and it was this big story. It would always lead ESPN First time ESPN would ever lead stories in its history with double-A baseball, right? Right, yes. And First and last. For what, it's, for what it's worth, given his athletic background in baseball, what Jordan actually did was pretty impressive. Yeah. Uh, no, it I mean, was. Really, yeah. Double-A baseball is a high level of baseball. I don't D- think people realize that. Double-A, so, so naturally you think, okay, triple-A is the best baseball. Sometimes that's yes. the case, but a lot of times those are guys that are maybe on their second run and maybe they're a little bit older. Generally, a lot of the best prospects are in double-A, and I'm saying younger prospects. And, and, and right. once again, that can change organization to organization and year to year. But if you've noticed it with Round Rock, Round Rock's had some great triple-A teams. When they were double-A, they had some really talented double-A teams. And if you're a baseball nerd like me, I, I know the guys that are probably going to be up at some point. So a lot of times I wanted to see double-A talent. But a double-A breaking ball which Michael ran into, is some serious stuff. To knock in 50 and to actually hit 200 when really he had never hit because the last time he played, I think, was in high school or even before that, and he was a pitcher. That's actually pretty damn impressive. It's actually very impressive. And to, to make it clearer to people like me who are baseball novices, a, double a, a typical double-A pitcher that you would run into would be as good as a great Texas pitcher. Yes. Texas ab- like, yes. So Austin Wood is the typical like level of pitcher we're talking about. Like, right. That's a really good pitcher. So for fun, I was just thinking about it, watching the series and, and musing about it. I was like, if I went and, and so I got to practice for three months hard and, you know, and I'm in, in front of the batting machine and I'm taking pitching practice. You know, I'm doing all I got a coach. I've got all these different things to try to improve my performance. If I went up against a double A pitcher. A hundred pitches. I think I could foul off five. Yeah, it- I think I could put three into play. And I think one might go through for a hit. <laughs> so I think I would bat ten. <laughs> I would not bat 100. I would bat 10. And I think you would also see me if they threw like a high fastball because I'm not used to it. Uh, you'd, you'd, think you'd see me like bail out like I was getting shot or being attacked or something. Like, I, I, I don't think people understand like how good that level of baseball is. And um, it's just incredibly impressive to actually go hit 200 when you have no background in baseball that's, that's, that's reasonable. It is. And the, 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 actually, the funny thing, and by the way, nice shout-out to Austin Wood. Also, shout-out to Randy Boone, who would have been the same type of guy that you're talking about, Texas pitcher, and really damn good. Both those guys yep. are huge fans of EGAT. So 
Well, we appreciate everything you did on the 40 and appreciate you uh, joining this family. But in terms of the breaking ball, that would be the funniest thing. So if you and I are up there, the first really nasty bender we get that starts at our head, we would be on the ground and some of these guys can bend that back over for a strike. That's where you really look like a puss and a dumbass. I would dive to the ground. I would probably yell out something like in a very feminine, high-pitched voice. Ah. Yeah. Ah. And then I, out of just uh, some attempt to reclaim my manhood, I'd charge the mound. And I'd get kicked out of the game. Yeah, because you'd want yeah. to. You'd be like, I'd rather get in a fight something I've done than have to face yes. this three more times. I would feel far more comfortable getting in a, a brawl. <laughs> a base brawl than facing another breaking ball and just humiliating myself. I mean, yeah, I, I think, and, and I'm basically being optimistic saying if I faced a hundred pitches, I think I could hit one. I think I could bat 10. Yeah. I think I, I could foul five. Well, first off, like these guys, especially now, and even back then they're throwing harder now, but he would have been facing 94, 95. And it's really the breaking balls. Cause he obviously got the timing down with that hit streak where he could hit fastballs. That's what separates it. I've seen so many damn good college players that either played here or played against Texas and came through here, and I was dead set. I was dead set, man. They're going to be a major leaguer, and I think they're going to tear up double-A pitching, and they just hadn't seen breaking stuff, off-speed stuff like that. They hadn't mm-hmm. seen change-ups like that, that that look exactly like fastballs, and all of a sudden they pull the string on you. Um, that That's where all of a sudden – it's just a different level. So you are completely correct, 100% correct. People, novices don't understand just how good double-A baseball is. It, it's double-A double baseball and triple-A's. It, it's, it's obviously, it's, you're that close to the big leagues. Do you agree with me, though? Honestly, do you think that I could dribble like a pathetic little single out of 100 at-bats? Do you you, think, I, I think that might be optimistic. Did you ever play baseball? I did when I was young. I quit because I would just get bored. I liked hitting. Like how young? Uh, up to like junior high age. Okay. All right. Um, well, so I'm I, assuming I, you're I, giving me time to practice yeah. and like really try. I know you have good hand-eye coordination. I know that you're a good athlete. Uh, it'd still be really hard, man. I played baseball, played played more baseball than you, and I'm not sure if I if I could do that. I mean, like you said, though, with three months, if you're getting your timing down a little bit, so you've been hitting – hitting in cages and getting sped up to that velocity, uh, I think I would have a better chance. Uh, I would just pray the guy throws me a changeup because it'll look like a fastball and maybe I can square it up. What if I, yeah, what if I bunted every at-bat? Hey, man, I, trust me, I, I, would, I would be laying a couple down. The problem is I can't run anymore. I could never really run, but I definitely can't run now. So I think I'm damned if I do, damned if I don't. But, yeah, uh, it, look, it, it would be incredibly, incredibly hard for anyone to do that uh I would love to see you know we always talk about Michael and then LeBron always comes up I don't know if you saw the story but that LeBron was saying that he was entertaining during the lockout last lockout of getting in football shape and Jerry Jones sent him a uh, a contract anytime he wants it I heard about that and Dallas I guess the Cowboys are LeBron's childhood favorite uh, I actually think LeBron, if he had gone straight from high school and played college football, I think he would be a very good NFL player. I do, too. You know, he played his sophomore and junior year. Didn't play his senior year because he got hurt in some AAU game. And so, you know, smart move, actually. Did did not play football senior year. But he says he dreams about it. He still has a lot of dreams about it, especially missing that senior season. I mean, just that size and that athletic ability and hand-eye coordination, everything. He would have been – he would have been a freak. Now, he played receiver. The question was, at some point, would he have moved to tight end? Yeah, you'd have to play him a tight end. And he would be an upgraded, a very upgraded Jimmy Graham or Antonio Gates. 6'8", 260, 44-inch vertical. So he'd probably run a 4'5", 4'6", 40. And he obviously has great hands. He's not, he's physical enough, right? The physicality is there. And, you know, remember LeBron James, his weight has fluctuated in his career between 250 and 270. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not outside the realm of possibility that he could be, uh, you know, maybe even if he, if, again, he'd have to have done it his whole life, but he could have played defensive end maybe, you know, he's upgraded, at least athletically, Julius Peppers. So yeah. 
Yeah, there's there's no question in my mind he would have been an NFL player, probably a star. All right, let's get to another star right now. We'll get back to Chicago, a little 3-1-2, and that would be David McClellan, who has joined our family. We've been talking about, with all the recent events, a lot of people are worried about your retirement plans, and rightfully so. Uh, I think all of us have reassessed it and kind of thought about where we are, where we were, and where we want to go. That's where we're proud to offer our listeners a chance to work with David McClellan, a fiduciary financial advisor from Forum Financial. He practices, uh, his practice specializes in financial life coaching and retirement planning. So right now he's offering free consultations for our listeners. If you mention you heard the podcast. That's a free consultation at this time, anytime that's really cool in this industry, but definitely at this time. David can help you understand your financial freedom number. That is the important number that you need, and also what you could be doing differently to build your wealth and achieve some financial freedom and do it faster. It's well worth your, worth your time to talk with David and see what David can do for you. Give him a call, 312-933-8823. 312-933-8823. Because of regulations, there's only so many things we can say, but trust us, th- this is a call you want to make. Very sharp guy, very bright guy, and we're happy that he is part of the family. Let me also give you his email here. If I can get that thing up, let's see here. I know it's at Form Fin. Yeah, yeah, it's dmcclellan at formfin.com. dmcclellan at formfin.com. Or just call him, like I said, 312-933-8823. All right. Before David got his advanced degree at the University of Chicago, which is a pretty prestigious finance school. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, he was the University of Texas champion swimmer, three national championships at, during his time. And uh, the good news about swimming is if I did a similar thing, we've agreed that I can't hit Austin Wood or Randy Boone, no matter how much I tried or practiced. If I raced against David or his best teammates, oh. which includes several future Olympians, right. at, least I wouldn't, at least I wouldn't drown. That's true. And and you wouldn't be scared. There's one thing with baseball when you're when you're facing someone that's that much better than you and has that type of stuff, you know you're outmatched. If he's a lane next to you and you can look up and he's lapped you for the second time, at that point it's just funny cuz he's a badass, they're badasses, but physically you're not taking the brunt. I would if it was I'd be lapped in a sprint race. By a, like a real swimmer. By a real swimmer. And, there's, and they don't do two laps in a sprint. Right. I'm just saying that, yeah, it would be horrible. I would, I would probably just swim underwater to <laughs> save my ego. Because that way, if you're deep underwater, like take a big breath, go down, kick off, and you just swim underwater. And then I go down to the bottom. And that way I couldn't hear all the laughter. <laughs> oh, and then I would, I, would, I would refuse to come up. Oh. Yeah, I'm not. I I love to swim, and I think I'm a pretty good swimmer for just a dude. But we're talking about a different different athlete and different skill set. I, I enjoyed covering swimming and diving when I was at LHN, and specifically the swimmers. But the, those those guys and girls are just in. They're in different shape, man, and they're just built differently. Yeah, different shape, built differently. They're basically human otters. Yeah, so pretty much. It's ridiculous to watch them and their comfort level moving through the water. It's, it's just it's hilarious. And how quickly they can just do like efficient little movements and they're halfway across the pool. Yeah. And you're like, I'm, <laughs> I'm breathing hard trying to do a traditional crawl from like a Buster Crab Tarzan movie in the 1940s. Right. And these guys are flying like they barely like touch the water and they go 50 meters. It's ridiculous. How did one of your parents or someone in your family have sex with a dolphin? Because uh, th- this is just, this is not human. They, they, they look like, especially dolphins, how they can just kind of have those little subtle movements, and you'll see all-American swimmers, just the way they glide in the water. It's pretty impressive. But a lot of that, as we've talked about, is the tapering and making sure that you're in shape and making sure that you're at your apex when it matters the most. I know one thing that we're all concerned about is the Texas football strength and conditioning, and that goes for every school. Uh, I know know recently you saw something with Yancey McKnight, which piqued your interest. I did. So Yancey McKnight held a Zoom session for fellow S&C coaches, strength and conditioning coaches, and looked like a variety of different people. Uh, Some of the little Zoom squares that I saw 
were amusing. <laughs> There's some interesting <laughs> characters that joined the session, but uh, like who? As, like what are you talking all, about? Oh, you, there are some real musclehead type dudes. Gotcha. <laughs> uh, looking at the camera like Crow Magnon, like they're confused by what a camera is. <laughs> and there's one guy picking his nose. Uh, <laughs> there was another guy that would like you could hear stuff in the background. Another guy was kind of lying on his side with his hand on his face, framing it uh, <laughs> like he was laying in bed watching the session. It was very interesting, uh, but. When, like most of us, uh, Yancey was messing with the Zoom session slides for about two minutes before he got it going. And uh, anyway, I'll start with the, the most interesting thing he said. And he said a lot of interesting stuff. He said uh, that he kept saying, yeah, we may get, be able to get our guys or maybe able to get my hands on our guys June 1st. Mm, whoa. Now, he's not the decider on that. Uh, Herman's not the decider on that, but Del Conte is not the decider on that. But as long as they're all for it, that's a good thing. And, you know, obviously there's people above that pay grade who will decide, but he seemed to have some suggestion that that was a possibility. And I, I was heartened by that. So we'll see. Maybe I'm giving you guys all false hope, but that's, that was one of the things that piqued my interest. The other thing that kind of piqued my interest, Kevin, was uh, his competence level. He, he, he knows his stuff. And I kind of always suspected it because of comments he would make. And I did a lot of research on him when, when we got him. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not interested in reliving history, but we had some previous strength and conditioning guys who would make casual comments about things that had me rolling my eyes like, this is not good. Hmm. And, and I, would get, I was privy to a few of the programs that we were doing, and it was no surprise that Texas football players were not developing the way they should. And I think Yancey has changed that. I think there's a lot of good stuff. Obviously I didn't have perfect clarity or x-ray vision into the program and exactly all they're doing, but he was pretty open. And so he talked a lot about winter conditioning. Obviously they didn't have him in the spring. Um, a lot of it was culture stuff. And here's an interesting thing that they do, Kevin. Uh, so to keep it interesting and to inspire player ownership, the 2020 theme for the team's ownership, they had team leaders draft 10 man teams and they had an actual draft. These leaders chose their guys. And then you were responsible for your team of 10 as a leader. Okay. So the coaches wouldn't communicate the workouts or where to meet or what to wear or anything to the team. They would just communicate it to the leaders. And the idea was player led, not coach fed. Yeah. And so the players were held responsible for not only making sure everybody was doing the proper stuff, would run the warm-ups and they were also responsible as a group for player discipline for guys who would miss workouts or miss a rep or whatever so i thought that was pretty interesting just as it is the case with the hermaculture in general everything's a competition everything's points and so they had certain things that would earn you more points uh certain things that give you dings i wrote down a couple of things that are dings on your point total that i thought were pretty funny one of them, one of the, just one of the words under, on the PowerPoint was loafs. <laughs> <laughs> Not the kind of loafs you leave around the station in the bathroom, Kevin. No, no. Or the type of loafs that I like to bake. No, no. That's, that's right. uh, it, yeah, that's, that's no bueno. So if you're perceived to be loafing, you had points taken off. Uh, another one was missed meals. All three meals that they eat are mandatory. Hmm. And you actually have penalties if you miss a meal. And we always think about football players as, you know, we kind of focus on eating for the big guys. And we're always like, oh, maybe that guy needs to eat less or maybe he should drop a couple of pounds or whatever. Well, there's a lot of, of skill players and little guys uh, who miss meals and they just don't eat and they lose weight and they don't gain strength and they don't take care of their bodies. And so all meals are mandatory. And uh, you, it's, like a, it's like a big offense to miss a meal in the program. Um, so anyway, I thought that was interesting. Um, he had some, from a, just a pure strength and conditioning programming standpoint, very good grasp of periodization and, and how to structure it and how to balance hard strength, progressive weight training with conditioning and with team building. And, you know, cause that's an aspect of strength and conditioning too, right? Pushing guys. 
and, and, you know, making them dig down, but not doing that too often because you actually can degrade their performance and degrade their ability to build strength. So Yancey talked about that. And one of the things that was super interesting is they do a lot of 10 yard sprinting and they laser time it and everybody knows their best time. And then you have to, you have to reach 90% of your best time every time you do a 10 yard sprint. And it translates well to football. It, translates to your 40 you can make a direct extrapolation based on someone's body weight and their body composition from their 10 time to their 40 time and i think it reduces a little pounding and so according to yancey the 2017 team 2018 team uh 2020 team or pardon me 2020 team was the fastest team he's timed since he's been at texas oh interesting that's good to hear yeah and um, Sam Cosme, for example, weighed 310, and he ran a 1.7210. That's pretty damn impressive, Which, man. For an offensive lineman, that's damn good. Yeah. That is legit. So that he's going he's gonna to run just fine at the NFL Combine. Um, well, and, they, and they also thing, look for that. We talked about it with Malcolm Roach. That's one of the things that Roach really impressed people with was, I believe, his 10. Yep. He, yeah, he ran like a one six seven, which is extremely good. So yeah. Uh, what's another thing? Sorry. I didn't mean to throw you off there. No, not at all. I'm, I'm looking at my notes. I actually wrote this post up on inside Texas. If you want to read it and read some other good content, go join inside Texas. Uh, but Yancey mentioned, he's not a big bench press guy. Hmm. You know, you and I back in our day, and I think it still persists back in our day. It was like, what do you bench bro? Oh, right. right? Yeah. That was the ultimate meathead uh, evaluation of strength. And you also you also you also max out or you try and find what your max is way too often. Yes, exactly right. You should not be maxing out all the time, right? It's not good for you, and it's actually it's detrimental to growing your max, which is ironically the thing that you want to do. Exactly. Uh, But yeah, I remember that distinctly. Uh, You'd always try to max out, and you didn't. It was so stupid, um, but he's not, he, he's not against the bench press, but he said, you know, basically we do it to sort of throw the bone to the players because the players love it. And he knows that they're, you know, it is a useful upper body exercise, but they do a lot of pressing like shoulder press. Hmm. So you have standing shoulder press, mm-hmm. um, kind of the old school 50 strong man, like, like a classic lift. Um, it's very good for your shoulder health as well. And uh, he talked about that. He also talked about they measure people with what they call power factor, which is your vertical jump versus your body weight. You and I've talked about that at length before in the podcast. And then also they have something called power index, which is your squat bench power, power clean total divided by your body weight. And so they create ratios for that. They throw in your 10 time. And then Yancey has a very good understanding of what your natural level of athleticism is, your explosiveness, your power. But he also understands then how mature you are in fulfilling that in terms of strength. Gotcha. So it was a very sophisticated way of approaching it, and, but also kind of simple that the players could understand. And uh, I got to say, all in all, I was very impressed by him. Um, I don't think it's an element of the program that's underachieving at all. And, and you know, I, I do think the underachievement was happening more at the position level. I do think it was happening more in terms of some of the X's and O's. And I think Yancey's doing a good job. And so... Anyway, I was impressed. He got into some of his specifics of periodization. Uh, they do different sprint workouts. He, they also do a high-speed treadmill workout, which when I saw on the slide at first, I kind of lifted an eyebrow like, oh, God. <laughs> but it actually makes sense. So the way he explained it is they do a severe incline sprint. So it's almost like Tabata, and it's anaerobic conditioning. So you, and, and the deal is because it's on a treadmill, you have to keep up. So there's no loafing or lollygagging potential or else you fall off the treadmill. And the treadmill teaches you, particularly because you're running at a sprint at an incline, it teaches you uh, proper running mechanics and that you're going you're gonna to run on the ball of your foot instead of on your toes or heel striking. Oh, that's interesting. So, I, didn't think of that. I didn't think of that aspect. I, I didn't think about that at all, and it makes sense. Yeah, it does. No, it completely makes sense. Well, I feel good about that. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to get that report. I know that you know your shit and you're honest with stuff, too. So if it, 
if the report card was going to be a D, we were going to be told about the D and why exactly you're a D student. But it sounds like that is an element of the program that's in pretty good shape. And look, for a majority of our life, that was that was kind of back and forth. I mean, it was a Dana LaDuke, I believe, when in the 80s uh, yes. would have been a guy who early on I think did a pretty good job with Texas. People have different thoughts on Jeff Mad Dog Madden. Um, but I'm just glad to hear after Pat Moore that they're doing squats. I mean, it does seem like did, did, did that ever add up to you at all? Is there any reason to not do that? No. Okay, just checking. No, you know, Pat Moore actually was asked a question about that, and I think the comment he made was, when do you squat during a football game? You're not, you, know, you don't put the other man on your shoulders and squat down. And Eww. I was just like, man, yeah. like, this is a guy who doesn't get it. The idea of a squat is it's a compound body exercise, right. which really works if you do heavy squatting. It, it's not just your legs. Like, your entire body has to be tight. It, it, you, people talk about the core. It's fashionable to talk about your core. <laughs> the squat is a core exercise. And the idea of it is the stronger you get, the more you translate that strength and particularly that hip drive into football playing. It is a direct translation. And, you know, his ar- and he had similar arguments about, you know, cleans and stuff like that. And, and he, you know, for, to keep things simple, they would have just one weight on the bar and every guy would do the same weight, but they would just do as many reps as they could. Oh man. And that's not smart strength and condition. That's not training. That's exercise. Yeah. And there's a difference. No, it's a good point. Uh, what was your take? I love the guy cause I worked with him at LHN. I loved him as a person. He's in Norman. Now what was your take on Benny Wiley? Apparently the nicest guy in the world. Oh, and he's a hard worker. He is fantastic as a human being. What, what I've heard is that he actually didn't have full autonomy yep. over the program and uh-huh. that Matt, Mad Dog was still sort of directing the show from a level above. You're correct. And so that's what I'd always heard, and uh, I think that got the results that you thought. I mean, look, I'm not going to try to speak out of school on this, but uh, there, in the 2000s, and a lot of Longhorn players will back you up, back me up on this, is a rite of passage for Texas Longhorn football players – was a torn pec or a torn rotator cuff. Yeah. Because Mad Dog really was into benching. He was into the push aspect of lifting weights three times a week, heavy benching, and he did not do the pull. And you've got to balance it out. And that's one of the reasons I've extolled before, one of the reasons I'm defiant of the lockdown here in San Francisco. You've got to go do your chin-ups. You've got to go do your pull-ups. You've got to do your deadlifting. You've got to do these things that can – um, balance out all the pushing because it's, it's something that you can create these, these real inequities in your development, and it's going to always result in a tear when you get some sort of trauma. Speaking of that, let's get an update. You've been sneaking into parks to do chin-ups as, as you're, you're also right. hiding from the cops still? Well, here's what i got to worry about, Kevin, and this is a, a great evolution in our society. In L.A. and San Francisco – They've got a phone number you can call to report your neighbors or to report a business if you see them doing things that are unsafe. Oh, I know. I know. They have it in Austin, and they had over, I want to say it was around 3,000 calls. And this is where I'll get on the people, the public. And look, it's not it's not many people, obviously. It's probably the same person calling uh, 20 times. Or but, HOA. Yeah, exactly. But it was around 3,000 calls that they had to look into only two tickets were given that is get off my lawn crap right there yeah it is i mean it's so one of the uh, fascinating things about the end of the soviet union and the end of communism the berlin wall falls is that the german government mandated that all of the old uh and i'm forgetting the name of the east german equivalent of the kgb but all of their old files had to be released to public and you could make a viewing appointment and read your file. And so, of course, millions of East Germans went and read their files, their surveillance files, their Communist Party files. And it's covered in an amazing movie. If you guys have not seen it, it's called The Lives of Others. It's a spectacularly good uh, film about that time in East Germany. And what they found was well more than 40% of the East German population were actively informing on their neighbors. Wow. Parents on children, children on parents, 
neighbors on neighbors, husbands on wives, wives on husbands. It was unending. And it was a way for people to, of course, lash out and, and have petty vengeance. But it was also an attempt at conformity and creating control and, and really making people distrustful of each other because right. that was key. Oh, well, I mean, 1984. Read that again. I haven't read that forever. And um, I think, was that the Stasi or Stasi? Stasi. That's exactly right. You nailed it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's the Stasi. And so these th- people. And by the way, know. that is fascinating. I've read up on that. Uh, that is, I would recommend people to read up on it. And it's fascinating history. Well, not only that, I mean, we talk about the Jordan documentary, people forget. People forget exactly what real totalitarian governments look like. Right. And, why it is important to have some individual freedoms and to cherish those freedoms. Um, and when you get people to comply with a program, make sure you're doing so willingly. Mm-hmm. You sell it to them. You educate them. You get their compliance as free people. You don't threaten them. You don't punish them. You don't cajole them. Um, you know, that's where I bridle. That's not the role of government. That's not the role of, of your neighbors. You know, a, it's perfectly neighborly, speaking of the HOA, to go knock on your neighbor's door and go, hey, I hate to bother you, but I did notice you've had a car up on blocks in your front yard for a couple of days. Uh, you know, is there any plan to do something about that? Right. <laughs> I mean, that's perfectly reasonable. Uh, but what's not cool is, uh, you know, going and trying to prevent people from having their kids swim after 7 p.m., because that's when the noise is supposed to be off at 7 p.m. exactly. But the kids kept swimming till 7.15. Like, give me a break. I know. Uh, I'll, I'll see that when I go on vacation if I stay, like, at condos. And uh, there's always usually an old bitty that will get up, and these kids want to get up. They're on vacation and go to the big swimming pool, and it's, eight, you know, 845 and not 9. And, and it's just like, come on, really? Like, is life that bad? And what is the rest of your day like if you're that effing miserable? It's tough. I, I feel like it's an ability to exercise power. Yeah, it's exactly people what it who is. feel powerless and they have resentment and they're maybe a little bitter themselves about how things turned out or decisions they've made. And they want to exercise a little power and create a little uh, create a little uh, little friction and, and a little excitement in their lives. Right. Yeah. Without a doubt. Uh, hey, let me give you one more shout out to, or one more shout out to David here. David McClellan. Get that financial freedom number. It's a free consultation. Now is the time to do it. If you're worried about your retirement plans, he can help you out. 312-933-8823 or dmcclellan at formfinfin.com. Absolutely. And don't forget our pal Gabe Winslow at Mortgage Solutions, 832-557-1095. I have no idea what the text he wrote me said, but I think the translation of it is, Rates could actually go up, and if you're on the fence, you should jump off the fence and give him a call. He'll take care of you. And, uh, Kevin, that has been an hour. Time has flown with the Will Purdue of podcasting. It does. I do. Hey, look, Will will get stuff done. I kind of felt like Bill Winnington today. I felt like I was hitting some 15-foot jumpers after MJ had just set me up. Yeah, I, I, I almost pippened out on you today with a migraine or her back. back but uh, just like that game seven, or what is it? What, what, what series was it that he, he gutted it out with his hurt back? That was Utah 98, game six, man. That was, uh, you know, throughout that whole series, his back had been having – it would tighten up. And if you've ever had a bad back, you know exactly, uh, exactly what he was going through. That sometimes yep. he actually had a dunk to start – I'll never forget that. Had a dunk to start off game six. And the way he landed, kind of landed uh, flat-footed – you could tell right away that thing. It's like a bolt of lightning if you've ever had that before. Well, and also Jerry Sloan, a brilliant systems institutional coach, not such a great game day tactical coach because uh, when you see Pippen struggling out there, maybe don't let him just play point forward and distribute the ball and hide on defense. Maybe you need to go after the guy with the hurt back who keeps going back into the locker room for treatment every five minutes. Yeah, I mean, look, Scottie Pippen's one of the best defenders the NBA's ever seen. He's one of the best all-around players the NBA has, has ever seen. That wasn't Scottie Pippen out there. And No. And if you didn't see that, man, you are blind as a bat. It's also kind of funny, Jerry, when he said, I don't know, you can never tell if Sloan was being a smartass. Sloan was a former Bull, uh, former Bull, so I always respected him, always liked him. I agree with your game day assessment, though. But when he said, oh, I didn't know Michael was sick, 
really? You couldn't see his eyes? Because I saw him come out right away, and I thought, oh, my God, it looks like he has the flu, which we found out was food poisoning. Speaking of Michael's eyes. Yeah, man, they've been. In the been, documentary? Yeah, I, yeah I, I saw that from episode one, and, and I think that's just smoking that many stogies, dude. I, I think it's jaundice. Really? Are you? Yeah, I think it's jaundice. I'm not joking. I think he's got a, a an excess of Bill Rubin running through his system. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I think that's jaundice, man. I'm not joking. The dude needs to go see his physician. Yeah, John, that's uh, that's like where that just where the skin. It's a condition with your eyes, but where the skin, right, of the whites oh, of the an eyes. En- enzymatic liver turns- condition. Oh wow. And uh, I know how he might have been hard on his liver and kidneys. Yeah, that was one thing that kind of changed with Jordan because early Jordan didn't seem like he drank a lot, and then uh, he definitely, definitely was partying. And that's actually one of the conspiracies. Now that the pizza maker came out and said that pizza was fine, I'm a Bulls fan, <laughs> which is I been, was a Bulls fan. I named my son after him. Right, it's been fantastic that that came out that that maybe Michael was in there smoking cigars and uh, drinking and playing cards all night. I know he loved to do two out of those three things for sure. Yeah, who knows? Well, it adds to the legend. And uh, if you get a choice between facts and the legend, always print the legend. Always take the legend. All right, buddy, we'll be back next week. Appreciate it. Adios.